Dotnet Rocks episode 839 with guest Andrew Brust. Recorded live Friday, January 18th, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklins.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at gesturepak.com. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl and Richard, he's in Vancouver. I'm in New London. Our guest is in New York. We are a, uh, a triangle of awesome today. Well, you two are fairly close together. It's only a few hours between you, London, and New York. True. It's a very skinny triangle. <laughs> we have a, a nice train that goes right to Penn Station from New London. I can literally walk three blocks, take a train, get off in Penn Station. It was that there. train that I was doing the uh, uh, cellular jammer tests on. Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah, the one where I'd stick my cellular jammer in my back pocket and just walk up and down the train and listen to everybody say, hello, hello, <laughs> hello. Yeah, that experiment. And the problem is that it's worse because now everybody's freaking out and they're even louder they're than They're louder they and more obnoxious. The jammer does exactly the opposite of what you want. I mean, it works. It just doesn't do what it sh- what you thought it would. But it turns out you can pass three hours just walking from train to train <laughs> causing hellos the whole time. You, you should do it on the quiet car, Richard. <laughs> just, just to tick them off. That's awesome. Oh, man. All right, better know a framework. Hit me. All right, what do you got? Well, today, um, in honor of our guest, who is a, uh, a SQL data access wizard, I thought I would go with something about NoSQL. 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 So, uh, there's a, um, a blog at Oracle, uh-huh. the MySQL blog, and a tutorial uh, on getting started with the NoSQL JavaScript Node.js API from MySQL cluster. Okay. So, so NoSQL on MySQL. N- no. Yes, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, with it's a, it's a JavaScript gateway. So, okay. that's the cool thing about it is that you can access uh, MySQL from Node.js. Cool. Right? So Give me a link. If you go to tinyurl.com slash mysqljs... You will get this blog post, and it's pretty fresh. It's only from uh, September of last year. Matt Keep is the author of it, and while I understand a little bit of it, not a whole lot, I can see that it would be valuable to anybody who wants to do that. There are uh, uh, examples there, so it looks pretty cool. Not, not that there's anything wrong with it. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Exactly. Don't have any problem with it. Yeah, not at all. So, who's talking to us, Richard? Also, in honor of our guest, well, you'll get this when I read the message to you. Uh, This is entitled, A Show on Big Data. Hi, Carl and Richard. I love your shows, and I'm a regular listener as long as I'm going to the gym. Anyway, you know big data is the, quote, big new thing, right? Or the first child of cloud computing. I've studied machine learning and data mining in schools for years, and at the time, nobody was interested in prediction and analysis of large data, and no one was interested to the degree that I had to be persuaded into a different career path and thus became a SharePoint developer. Aww. Just to put meat on the table. So as you can guess, I am the most excited person about big data right now. So I was listening to a lecture on Pluralsight by Andrew Brust. And I learned for the first time that Microsoft has a project on big data called Isotopes. I hope we can invite people working on that project and learn more from them. I'd probably say that .NET Rocks is my favorite podcast. You guys make software cooler than it already is, so thank you very much. And that's from Adirman Dowd from Saudi Arabia. Wow, cool. Not that I'm going to hold Andrew to talking about isotopes, but I want to talk to Andrew about big data in general. So, uh, Adirman, thank you so much for your email. This is the show you asked for, sir, so we're going to make it happen. And a .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And if you send me a barrel of heating oil, I'll send you three more .NET Rocks mugs. Because it's freaking <laughs> cold up here. <laughs> just what saying. What a bargain. <laughs> just saying. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online. Over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts, releasing 12 to 15 new courses every month, offering a free 10-day trial or 200 minutes to the library. 
Plural Site offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including courses on big data by Andrew Brust. Woohoo! Try Plural Site today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me formally introduce back for the first time in a couple of years, Andrew Brust. Blue Badge Insight CEO Andrew Brust has worked with Microsoft Technologies for two decades. He's been an influencer in the Microsoft tech community for 20 years and has worked closely with both Microsoft's Redmond-based corporate team and its field organization for over 15 years. He works with key people in Redmond and with other independent Microsoft experts around the world, so he's always learning. He's a regional director. He's an MVP. He's awesome. He's Andrew Brust. Hey, what's up, man? Hey, how are you? We go back I, a long I wrote, way. I wrote know. that myself, by the way. Ah, <laughs> I always love writing third person about myself. <laughs> yeah. Because you're so tempted to just stick in little surreal things. I am, anyway. Well, so we I'm, go back to the Carl and Gary days. In we, fact, I, I still, every time I have to bite my tongue, I almost call Richard Gary. Nice. <laughs> it's funny, huh? Uh, before the Carl and Gary days, I think we were talking at vbits 92 90 yeah 92 i think was the first vbits wasn't it i, I started 93? in 94 i started in 94 all right very yeah. good very good well anyway it was a long time ago so big data what are you up to these days yeah because none of that's actually in the in the in the really humble bio you just read yeah um, i sort of skipped over the big data Right, but so we talk- that proves that proves my humility because I haven't even talked about the big data. It stuff. actually <laughs> took you to the third paragraph to talk about big data. There you go. Yeah. Uh, well, basically, starting March first of last year, I became the guy covering big data for ZDNet. Awesome. Wow. Um, and uh, you know, there was some experience certainly with big data before that, um, but. But doing that writing and and interfacing with virtually every company in the space has definitely uh, gotten me an immersion program in the world of big data. And by the way, NoSQL. Um, and um, you know, you've had me on before talking about business intelligence. Right. And right. although uh, I don't know, I, th- maybe this will sound anticlimactic, but um, really, big data I- I- is a lot like BI, but with a different brand name and a lot more data. A lot more data. <laughs> When I think of big data, I think of, well, you know, the the very big projects that people crunch numbers of, you know, monstrous magnitude, like astronomy and things like that. But, you know, then I think about, well, now that that data is out there and accessible, there must be lots of companies that are interested in the results of that data, even if they aren't interested in doing the actual number crunching. Uh, That's, yeah, that's an excellent point, uh, that there's sort of a, a downstream consumption market for big data, even for companies who don't necessarily see themselves as, uh, you know, first line participants. But Mm -hmm. I think eventually, whether we still call it big data, or we just call it analytics, I think eventually every business will end up being a participant. Um, What I am fond of saying is that we've always had big data, we just never kept it. And what's, what's changed in the last five years, um, certainly, is that the the technologies come about so that processing it and and the storage of it is now economically feasible and that's that's brought about the ability to kind of be pack rats with lots and lots of data mm-hmm. and then and then do analyses and and um, build predictive models based on the data and of course there's a lot of value in that and that's that's what it's all about to the point where you know the New York Times and Forbes magazine and the Economist write about it all the time. And you know you know when that happens, yeah, it's hot. And usually the whole idea of it is kind of distorted. So then that that's always fun to swoop in and try and. So clear. what are some of those misconceptions that people have that you're constantly swooping in and correcting? Well. Uh, the word big is 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 part of the problem. Mm. It makes people think that only big companies uh, can use these technologies and that the data sets have to be a certain size for these technologies to apply. And I find the whole notion of, you know, um, the, the size of a database and talking about it 
and and bragging about it and then finding out the reality is somewhat akin to men bragging about a certain part of their anatomy. Who does that? <laughs> yeah. There ends up being the claim and then there ends up being the reality. And uh, My ass is bigger than both your asses put together, okay? Let's just, let's just clarify that right now so that nobody challenges me. You guessed it. How'd you do that? Um, but I, I, I think another misconception, and it's understandable, is that big data is really only for companies who are, you know, kind of focused on the internet space and the web space or are in financial services. Mm. Um, but as a matter of fact, there's all kinds of data that comes from supply chain activity, that comes from manufacturing. Any kind of process that has to be monitored there's usually tons of data around that. And as I said before, you know, we just never kept it. It, it, it. Usually the whole idea was to monitor it. And if something looked out of place, then we'd react. Um, but now what's happening, especially in manufacturing, is that companies are keeping that data. They're building predictive models on that data. And, and then instead of having to react when some pieces, piece of equipment breaks down, they can actually predict that that breakdown is imminent and, and, uh, and deal with it preventively. Are people um, so still do, are people still making building data centers in 2012? Or uh, are are we you know taking advantage of the things that exist in the cloud and and out there? More? Well, there's a lot there's a lot of big data happening in the cloud, and and we will talk about Project Isotope, um, which by the way now has a brand name. It's called HD Insight, and that's Microsoft's big data uh, initiative. But um, and and that that absolutely ties into the Windows Azure cloud platform at Microsoft. There's um, all kinds of stuff going on with Amazon, and you're about to see it with Google uh, and Rackspace as well. So there's tons going on in the cloud. The problem with big data in the cloud is you have to get the big data into the cloud, uh, which means you need the bandwidth to do that. And it depends really where the data is coming from. If it's if it's internet born data, then that might be quite reasonable. If it's if it's data that would have otherwise gone, let's say, into an enterprise data warehouse, well, then things get a little a little trickier. Um, and until the bandwidth situation in this country changes, I think that's going to be a limiting factor. But, but yeah, this stuff does sit naturally in the cloud because a big a big facet of big data is that you scale up your your clusters of servers as the data size and the processing need warrants it, and then you shrink it back down. And so that whole uh, facet of elasticity is exactly what the cloud's about. So um, from from that aspect, at least, it's, it's quite well aligned. I, I'm still waiting for, and I don't know if they're doing this yet, but um, cloud providers like Amazon and Azure to accept hard drives in the mail that they can then either plug in or copy for you. Actually, Amazon's been doing that for a while. Have uh, they? Yeah, yeah. And that, and that's that's sort of the workaround to get this to work. Microsoft, back in June, when they introduced all these new features to Azure, said they were going to start doing it. But that's the last we've heard of it. So, wow. um, yeah, uh, Amazon does let you ship them hard drives, and they will, they will push the content of the drive into your S3 storage. That is so cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially when you start talking about four terabyte drives. That's a lot of data. Yeah. Bit of latency, yeah. but a lot of data. I guess it was Scott Hanselman who did a post years ago about how the bandwidth of FedEx is is often much faster. Oh, yeah. Bandwidth of yeah. The internet. It's true. This is one of those cases. I, I just had a conversation with some folks who were talking about the relationship between business analytics or business intelligence and OLAP and data warehousing and big data. I mean, Andrew, do you see all these things going to get... Together, where does a data warehouse fit in the context of big data? Yeah, they absolutely go together. Um, I, I I would go out on a limb and say, really, they're all the same thing. Right. Um, what makes big data a little bit more separated from BI than other related technologies is that, A, the technologies are different, and B, the people and the culture is a bit different. Mm -hmm. But the convergence is happening the people are starting to talk to each other and realizing that the technology on the other side of the fence isn't, you know, isn't something that should be scorned. And, uh, and yeah, it's all, it's all coming together. The big difference really, and, 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 you know, we could enlarge this to talking about data in a general way, but the big difference between what we would call BI typically and what we would call big data typically 
is really the the granularity of the data. How hmm. um, uh, I actually talk with some folks at Teradata. Um, I give them credit every time I bring this up, but it's it it explains it in a really compact way, which is that BI is about doing analysis on transactions, and big data is about doing analysis on behavior. Ah, interesting. So you think of an e-commerce site, I mean, do you want to just record the actual purchases or do you want to record all the clickstream information and understand, you know, the viewing of which product correlated with the viewing of which other product? Right. And, and so that's, that's how the Freakonomics guys do it. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you so, know, when we, in the e-commerce projects I've worked on, we talked about the funnel. You know, the number of people who only hit the home page and then leave, we call them bounce. And then this sort of analysis of how many pages they have to view before they start putting things into the shopping cart, how long they have to spend before they actually make a purchase, like actually looking at that chain and trying to define some behaviors around it so that you can optimize to get more people down the funnel. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So, the and you see... The other thing that uh, another part of the big data side that I thought was really interesting was the introduction of external data. This idea of we pull in census data, like not necessarily data we've generated, but conjuncting our internal data with external data. Yeah, that is an important part of it too, which is which is bringing in, and that's where open data comes in too, government data, and and actually that's where the cloud participates most productively now. Um, is when we're bringing in smaller data sets of reference data and, you know, doing in effect the, the, the data analysis equivalent of, of what we were calling mashups in the software world a few right. years ago. Um, data feeds are somewhat akin to services, I suppose, and even APIs. And if we can put them all together, then you know, hopefully you get a, a sum greater than the, the value of each of the parts. So um, it's cool stuff. Now, when you say big data, do you have a size in mind? <laughs> yeah, this is where <laughs> nine is, inches, right? Yeah, this is where <laughs> we were talking about before. <laughs> um, what, I, what I tell people when I give talks on this stuff is, is that if you want to be sort of in, uh, I don't know, the legitimate big data space, I suppose you should be talking about databases that are in the, the hundreds of terabytes up to petabyte scale. Really? Uh, yeah, but then when you investigate, you find out there's all kinds of stuff going on under the big data banner where the data sizes are actually much smaller. That's why I made the you know the crude analogy that I did. Um, so you know there are a lot of different definitions of big data. Some of it can be about how much data there is. Some of it can be about um, well the 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 sort of almost cliche way now of categorizing big data is the so-called three V's. Have you guys heard about the three no, V's? No, tell us. Nope. Um, volume, velocity, and variety. Hmm. So It's funny that Verve didn't make that list. <laughs> um, uh, let's see. So volume we've, we've talked about. Yeah. Um, velocity refers to the idea that the data is streaming. Um, rather than being kind of s static and, and sampled every so often, it's just continuously streaming in and, and oftentimes, uh, at, at, at quite a, quite a rate. Yeah. Um, and the variety refers to the fact that much of the data in the big data world is semi-structured or unstructured as opposed to the kind of regularity of rows and columns that we're familiar with in the world of relational databases. So if you're big in any one of those three vectors, which interestingly also starts with the letter V, um, then you can qualify as big data. And sometimes it's just about using big data technologies. Um, the poster child for big data is an open source technology called Hadoop. Yep. So I, I suppose if you're using Hadoop, even with a, a gigabyte uh, or, or you know several gigabytes of data, you're still doing big data because you're using big data technology. Right. So you know it's one of those many terms in the technology world that starts with a fairly rigorous um, definition and then gets kind of watered down and and well, let's just say more versatile. 
This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you Telerik Reporting. Every business app comes with a requirement for visualizing data. But why bury yourself in coding endless charts and grids when you can add interactive data visualizations quickly and codelessly? And what if you have to export and print these visualizations? Well, there's no need to code any of this. Try Telerik Reporting, the powerful ad hoc reporting solution for your web, desktop, and cloud apps. It's the easy way to create stylish, interactive .NET reports in a fraction of the time. It supports both relational and cube data sources, report embedding, and exporting to PDF, HTML, Excel, and Word, all in a single seamless package. Visit Telerik.com reports to download a trial copy. Telerik Reporting. It's fast, easy, and interactive. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Do you see a lot of sharing of data between, uh, um, probably more in science, but, uh, you know, somebody has a, a data set that they're collecting data on stuff, and then somebody also has a data set, and it turns out that it's the same data, pretty much. And we want to just sort of, uh, you know, the same type of data anyway. We just sort of want to add ours to the pile. Do you, do, is that a, a common thing, and is it a difficult practice in general? I think it's it's really going to be most common in academia, yeah. um, as you alluded to, and not not especially in industry. Yeah. Um, but actually, uh, I was just kind of reading about something. Forbes was reporting on the fact that the um, that the National Institute of uh, Standards uh, NIST had a um, a forum on big data and the cloud. Mm-hmm. And their feeling is that what's going to be really important going forward is that all these different cloud platforms should have standards upon which they can uh, interoperate. And that the driving force for that is going to be big data, that you're going to have different big data sets on different clouds and you're going to need to coalesce them. So, And you uh, prefer not to move them. Correct. Correct. So uh, even if it's not that common today, uh, I think I think it could become more common, and it may just be that the you know the it, the reason that it's not so common is because the technology is a limiting factor right now. I don't know enough about Hadoop to know how uh, you know to how to add nodes to it or to add islands of data or whatever you call it, but um, you know it seems to me that if there were standards in place, then uh, an algorithm that is chunking through data could just have a, a list of places where that data exists. So, so you could keep the data yourself, but then participate in the processing of it. I don't know if that is is a common practice or not. Well, a lot of NoSQL databases um, are, are are federate pretty easily, such that all you really need is kind of an internet host name um, to mm-hmm. register a node into a cluster. And uh, so that kind of that kind of portability is um, is out there, and 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 that's one nice thing about NoSQL databases is, you know, that those uh, those nodes in the cluster can be far flung geographically, and because there's lots of replication going on, it in effect it, that architecture helps the cluster serve almost as a content distribution network, right. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of things about NoSQL that I find to be funny, uh, like strange, funny, yeah. um, and, and obtuse, uh, but the, the, the ease with which you can just sling together clusters and, and the, the, the alignment of the architecture with the way the internet works and the way websites work is definitely very, um, definitely very compelling and something that the major, no, uh, the major relational databases, which you know at this point are all twenty years old and more, mm. um, have trouble keeping up with because you know when they were conceived, I guess there was an ARPANET, but there wasn't really an internet that people mm. were using mm-hmm. for applications. So, hmm. but at the same time, you know, it's not only old technology; it's just they were thinking a different way back then. Disk space consumption was expensive. You know, bandwidth wasn't even consideration because there wasn't any. Like you just you think differently about the problem. We we had a right. conversation uh, on the road trip with Ornini talking about how you know relational databases really focused on don't waste disk space. Normalization helps that. These days, disk space is so cheap; it just doesn't matter. Right. 
Right. Although one thing I was reading recently, I mean, it seems obvious after the fact, but, you know, because we've had these breakthroughs in technologies and because we have this kind of pack rat mentality now about keeping the data. Sure. The, the data rates are growing faster than the disk space's cost is decreasing. So, right. yeah. so well, you know, when you we talk about like hundreds of petabytes of data, that to me also speaks of, boy, you're pretty sloppy with your storage. Mm. Uh, so we're going to get to the point, I think, where the where the expense is is impactful. Um, yeah. I- ironically, because we got to a point where it wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> and so we stopped paying attention to it. I've, I've been watching closely some interesting technologies around deduplication for exactly that reason. Just recognizing right. that the way you end, end up eating that much space is duplicating a lot of data. Right, right. And to sort of dial back to your question about how data warehousing ties into this, um, I mean, first of all, data warehousing is a is a key component of of BI. Um, even if we like to think of BI as using kind of you know more esoteric stuff like OLAP cubes and and things of that nature, right. data warehouses are really important. And as it turns out, um, they're really important in the big data world too. There's a whole class of data warehouse appliances under the category of massively parallel processing or MPP. Mm-hmm. And most of these um, databases, I mean, they do some interesting things. So in effect, what you have inside of an appliance cabinet is a whole cluster of individual relational database instances and then kind of a head node that orchestrates and divides up the queries amongst them and then then coalesces the result sets and, and, you know, makes all of that transparent to the the user. Um, And, well, that's a a good thing in and of itself. But if you study Hadoop, you actually see that the way Hadoop works is very similar. The whole notion of having clusters of machines and distributing the query and parallelizing the query, it's common to both. And at this point, we've got MPP data warehouses that can take on the same petabyte scale uh, workloads that Hadoop can. And we haven't talked much about Hadoop and how it works yet, but you know, one facet of it that's interesting is that it, you don't really query it so much as you write code for it. You right. write you write functions natively in Java, but there's ways to do it in other languages that imperatively loop through the data and do stuff with it and then aggregate it. Hmm. Um, and suddenly, I, t- I told you these these worlds have separate cultures: the big data world and the and the relational SQL BI world. But suddenly, the big data world has come to realize that the SQL r- skill set is pretty ubiquitous. And yeah. Um, yeah. And by the way, having interactive query capability instead of having to write code and submit it in batch mode uh, tends to work better with query tools and analysis tools. So we're starting to see now the 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 convergence of SQL and relational technology with um, the so-called MapReduce-driven technologies like Hadoop, and uh, sort of it's sort of an everything old is new again. Uh, but you know, one of the big distinctions I've seen between Hadoop style work or that that style of big data work. And the data warehouse work is that data warehouses spend a long time well, on the ETL side, loading that data and polishing it and getting it into a form so that the, pro- the relational models would work on it. Where the Hadoop approach seems to say, leave it where it is, write the code to read it, to pull what you need from it, from where it is. Right. Arguably, when you're writing the MapReduce code, that's the imperative code I was referencing before. It's called MapReduce because you write two functions. You write a map function and you write a reduce function. And the map function, in effect, does some preprocessing and the reduce function does some aggregating. Mm. And you can make the argument that the map function is ETL. Um, but right. it's just it's it's late bound just in time ETL uh, <laughs> as as opposed to as opposed to you know the early bound strongly typed ETL yeah ETL is a pre process is now like ETL a, as an inline process spoken like a true programmer um, yeah that's it, that's what you get when you when you take a guy with a developer background and kind yep. of put him put him in the data world that's always been my thing you know I do have to credit Chris Sells with that observation though because he he asked me to describe the way hadoop works and uh and he, he he's the one who made that um 
who made that analogy with early bound, late bound. So, see, I give I give credit to to all the people whose um, witticisms I've stole. Stolen. <laughs> hey, Richard. Yes, sir. Guess what time it is? Must be that happy time again. It's the happiest time of the show. Uh oh. We get to give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, Woo-hoo! which is everything they do in one box, to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And who's that member today? And today's winner is Ralph Tricky. Ah, congratulations, congratulations, Ralph. Ralph. Golf clap for you. It's on its way to you. All you have to do is respond to my email. Nice. And uh, if you don't know what we're talking about, go to the .netrocks.com website, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and you too will be eligible to win. We have thousands of members in the fan club, and... Uh, Every December, we're giving away five grand worth of technology, and we already did it once. Yes. Last year. And we like to ask our guests, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology, what would you buy? Andrew? A hundred Chromebooks. No, just kidding. (laughs) 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 So you'd have a hundred things you can't do anything with. That's awesome. Uh, (laughs) They're going to make a hell of a cluster. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, I heard the big thing to do is build Hadoop clusters out of Mac minis. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. So they, they run Linux pretty well, apparently. Um, and they don't take up so much space. Yeah, kind of like that. So, so how many Raspberry Pis could you buy for five grand? A hundred? A hundred. They're only 39 bucks. All right, 120? Yeah. So seriously, what would you buy? Honestly, I don't know. Uh, $5,000? <laughs> yep. Yeah. You know, at this point, I guess the diversity of devices is such that, I don't know, I'd probably get a selection of devices. One of um, each? I, I probably would get a Chromebook. Uh, I probably would get um, some kind of Mac hardware, none of which I own right now. Hmm. Uh, I'd probably get a Surface Pro. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I don't know. I'd probably go buy an Android phone. I haven't had one in a long time. Cool. Yeah, I'm trying to feel like I need one of each phone. For some of the stuff that's going on in my life, it's like, yeah, I I should just have one of each. Yeah. It's a heterogeneous world, and I need to be heterogeneously joined. Well, I have have a Windows phone. My wife has an iPhone, and my brother has an Android phone. So I think I'm pretty much covered if I want to test something. Just got to go pick up the phone. Yeah. I have a Windows phone too. I have the um, the new HTC 8X and, and like it quite a lot. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you, Andrew. $5,000 worth of one of everything is kind of fun. But do you ever notice we have a incredible proliferation of IP addresses in our lives? Yes, we do. Yeah, and when is IPv6 going to jump in and fix that? Any day now. Well, it already has in certain places. Yeah, but n- so now what? Internet addresses are going to be GUIDs or something like that? Basically, yeah. Bigger yeah, than GUIDs, little, actually. That's sort of, that's that's even tougher than going from seven digits to ten digit phone numbers, you know? It's, <laughs> <laughs> how do, how do I memorize name resolution my IP really address? matters. Yeah, when somebody asks you, what's your IP address? You say, uh, well, you say, I can't email it to you and I can't really text it to you. Scan this QR code and you'll have it. Yeah, that's the great thing about IP addresses, uh, IPv4, is that you can get on the phone and tell somebody what it is, but it'd be difficult to, uh, not difficult, just pain in the butt to get on the phone and give somebody an IPv6. You're not going to do that anymore. You're just going to use name resolution. Yeah. Okay. Names will matter. Yep. But let's jump into the subject du jour. We have not really explained Hadoop at this point. That's true. And we've talked about it a little bit, and I'm still clueless a little bit. So, yeah, let's let's talk about it. Okay, let's do that. And let's let's also just um let's call out the fact that uh now that I'm kind of focusing on big data and talking to all these all the companies in the space, I mean, given my background and given the audience of this show, that the the thing to point out is it's it's a mostly non-Microsoft world there. Mm-hmm. Um although Microsoft does have an offering, which is this thing called HD Insight, which is their implementation of Hadoop that runs on Windows. Um, virtually every other implementation of Hadoop runs on Linux. Right. And um, 
you know, some people, a lot of people actually from the big data world say, well, just because Microsoft can get it running on Windows, why would I care? And the answer is, well, first of all, maybe you don't, but there are plenty of enterprises out there that, you know, have Windows infrastructure. And if they're kind of coming into the Hadoop world, then they'll care. And the other answer is that in the cloud, you shouldn't really care what operating system it's running on. And if Microsoft can have Hadoop running on Windows, then they can have uh, Hadoop running as a service on Windows Azure. Mm -hmm. And and things start to get interesting. So there is an intersection at the corner of Hadoop and Microsoft. Um, <laughs> I, I'm often there standing by myself. Um, <laughs> On a soapbox? Yeah, no, it's a, I like that. I like to be contrary and have everyone think I'm strange. Um, <laughs> but uh, if people in the Microsoft and sort of .NET worlds are scratching their heads, wondering how this kind of all affects them, um, I mean, it will. And even when Hadoop's running on, on non-Microsoft platforms, there's still all kinds of uh, integration points, including good old ODBC. But let me get to your question. So what's Hadoop all about? Well, uh, the generality of it is that it's about putting together clusters of servers made from commodity equipment with commodity disks hmm. and putting them all together so that they can take a sort of divide and conquer approach to uh, doing analysis on data. Specifically, the way it works is, well, Google uh, published a paper, I believe back in 2004, describing one of their internal technologies called MapReduce and their own concoction of a file system called the Google File System, or GFS. Mm -hmm. And what happened was a guy named Doug Cutting, um, along with uh, various colleagues uh, at Yahoo, said, you know what we should do? We should do a, a, an open source implementation of this. Now that the paper has kind of described how it works, right. let's do an open source implementation and make an Apache Software Foundation project out of it. And okay. the, thus Hadoop was born. Um, and Doug Cutting's child had a uh, stuffed animal, an elephant stuffed animal that he named Hadoop. And that's where the name comes from. Ah, okay. <laughs> and that's where the logo comes from. And it's too bad this is a radio show because I ha I got this little sticker from somebody that shows the Hadoop elephant climbing the Empire State Building, just like King Kong. Instagram, <laughs> baby, Instagram. <laughs> Which is just awesome because uh, I'm coming to you from the 72nd floor of the Empire State Building right now. So yeah. this is just made for me. Um, so if it, so if it runs on Windows and I have like... Uh, 20 old classroom machines that were, I don't know, P3s or something like that sitting in the back. I could just set up a cluster in here? Well, go you one better. You can actually um, download a OneNode version of it that runs on your local PC, and you can use it as a developer sandbox. Um, hmm. But the short answer to your original question is yes, except that the version that gets installed on the server um and that you then use to build your own clusters of the Microsoft distribution is actually not really out yet. Um, oh. you, have the, you have the option of running it on Azure or now of using this one node sort of dev instance. Right. But anyway, the, we were talking about MapReduce before. Right. So Hadoop is all about MapReduce. You write a map function, which will tend to take the unstructured data, scan through it, and organize it into the format of key and value pairs um, that you know kind of represent whatever it is you want to count and analyze so you might have you might have web logs with all kinds of information but you'll end up outputting a series of you know URIs and numbers of clicks or something like that those would be your keys and values values can be almost anything though right I mean a value can be a long string it could even be a blob but you'll organize it into keys and values and then the reducer, will uh, then be able to process all those keys and values. It will be able to count on the fact that everything will be sorted by key. Hadoop will do that automatically mm -hmm. for the reducer. So it says, okay, here's the first instance of, some, of a value with this key, and I'm going to loop through until the key changes, and I'm going to aggregate somehow. It might be a simple sum, or it might, you know, any, any sort of aggregate function you can think of, and a few that maybe you can't, um, that's what you would do. And the idea is, you know, you write that and let's suppose it processes, uh, I don't know, 100,000 rows of data pretty fast. 
now you have 100 million rows. Well, so you add some more servers to your cluster. And the same code you wrote, just think of it almost as an event handler um, hmm. that Hadoop fires on all these different instances when it needs to, and you're good to go. The other trick about Hadoop, though, is that all the locally attached disks on all those nodes in the cluster together form a single file system, a distributed file system called the Hadoop distributed file system, which would sort of be the open source version of the Google file system. So that's a neat thing where you have, you know, essentially a bunch of commodity SATA drives that get pulled together into what is essentially a single storage volume. Uh, there's replication that happens so that if any of those nodes fail, and of course they will, um, since they're commodity, uh, you don't lose any data because there's at least you know copies on two other nodes. And what also happens, hopefully, it depends a little on how smart Hadoop is about it, but it will dispatch the processing of specific data to a node where that data happens to already exist on the local disk. Hmm. So instead of having to use shared storage and then move the data around the storage network to the individual nodes, you get so-called locality of data so that a given processing node, it corresponds to the storage node that it would be interested in, and then you're not moving data around on the network as much, which, by the way, puts it at an advantage in front of these massively parallel processing data warehouses because those do use stored, uh, those do use shared storage. So that's what Hadoop is really all about at the core, but then there are all these pieces to the Hadoop stack that kind of go on top of Hadoop and end up, in effect, generating the MapReduce code for you. Hmm. Wow. So there's this thing called PIG, that has a query language called Pig Latin. Now, is it P-I-G or is it P-Y-G? It's, it's, it's P-I-G, spelled okay. normally. All right. And um, the thing about Pig is you can almost think of like each clause in a SQL query as being a line of code in a Pig script. Mm -hmm. um, but there is, there is a pretty close correspondent. Think of it also, if you want, like, the, like a, a data transformation that you would do in, in an ETL tool like SQL Server Integration Services. You write all the code, nothing actually runs until you say dump the results to the, um, to the, the display or dump them to a specific file. And then when you do that, it will actually generate MapReduce code to get the work done. Surfing the web? Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small. Especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of Active Reports. Oh, yeah? Yeah, we've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature, I think, is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active Reports from Component 1. Smarter Components for Smarter Developers. In addition to Pig, though, there's this thing called Hive, which does mechanically the same thing, except it, in, it, it uh, accepts SQL as uh, its input. Uh, it doesn't call it SQL, it calls it HiveQL, but it right. is SQL. And, um, and there's ODBC and JDBC drivers for Hive, so Hive ends up being the enabling technology that joins the ecosystem of BI and SQL tools with the world of Hadoop. Um, and so when you see so many companies all of a sudden having a big data story, often the reason why is that they've simply developed their own Hive connector or they're using one of the existing ODBC drivers. And that, that works well as a stopgap. The, the problem is that those map and reduce functions, those are not sort of instantaneous functions. They get submitted as a batch job. So you're submitting a SQL query as if you're querying a relational database, but what's actually happening is that's getting translated, submitting, getting submitted as a job, and you have to wait for the job to complete before you get control back from what looked like an innocent SQL query. So it creates the illusion of SQL, but 
not the real workings of it. And so if you look at all the companies involved in the Hadoop space, each one in a different way, including Microsoft, by the way, is trying something to bring true kind of uh, SQL uh, uh, dynamic query capabilities to Hadoop. They're all doing it in slightly different ways. Microsoft's way is this thing that was revealed at the past summit this past fall, um, and it's called Polybase. And Polybase will be a component within Microsoft's MPP data warehouse, which is called SQL Server Parallel Data Warehouse Edition, or PDW. And what Polybase will do will allow PDW to bring data from the Hadoop distributed file system in as sort of external tables into a SQL Server database. And then you query the PDW database with SQL. You can even join those pseudo tables to conventional tables. And what PDW will do is to go directly against the Hadoop storage, bypassing the MapReduce layer completely. Uh, and all the parallelism that's already built into PDW will be brought to bear uh, against the data in the files uh, in Hadoop. Cool. So, And there's lots of other approaches um, that are doing similar things. Cloudera, which is a big, arguably the biggest company in the space, has uh, come out with a beta of something they call Impala. And Impala is nothing more than a SQL query engine implemented on top of HDFS. And it, too, bypasses the MapReduce layer completely. So although MapReduce was sort of the enabler for all of this, I think what we're going to see in 2013 and 2014 is the kind of evolution of Hadoop beyond beyond MapReduce. Okay, so without MapReduce, now what are you doing? Some kind of parsing function and type matching to align the data? Like, that's kind of not optional. It's, kind of, it's an important part of the equation. Well, what you're doing is reading files low level, but that's all your MapReduce code is doing anyway. Right. It's just that it has some logic behind how it reads it. That's right. And, but that logic is rather ad hoc. I mean, you're, you're writing the code. What you get is an orchestrating engine that understands how to divide that code, uh, you know, to dispatch it to various nodes and also to manage the storage and also to manage the, you know, the collation by key for you. Sure. Uh, and so, you know, arguably that can still happen. The, 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 the latest sort of code base of Hadoop implements um, this thing called YARN, which is an acronym, believe it or not, for yet another uh, resource negotiator. <laughs> <laughs> I love yet another. Yet another. <laughs> yet another. So what YARN does is it says, all right, we're going to maintain the whole kind of Hadoop infrastructure, the whole framework, but we're going to let you kind of put in other programming paradigms besides MapReduce. Hmm. So this isn't, this isn't sort of bypassing the layer. It's using the layer, but making the algorithm pluggable so that it's not hard-coded. Well, to, I also think algorithm efficiency is the key here, right? You can write some nasty MapReduce algorithms that are going to slow everything down in a big way. Yes, you, you, you well may. But for I suppose for different, um, for mathematically different kinds of analyses, uh, a, a, an approach other than MapReduce might work better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it all comes depends on what the data is in the first place. I got to imagine there's lots of MapReduce functions that are pretty darn simple because the data is coming in in a fairly stable form. Yeah, the the hello world of Hadoop is this thing called word count, which basically opens an ebook and counts all the distinct words and the number of occurrences of each. And if you look at the code for that, it's it's pretty darn it's pretty darn simple, right? Although, hmm. as with any framework where you have to do 18 things just to say hello world, I mean, you, you do have that complexity. Yeah. But it, it's just the, you know, it's just the formalities. It's not, it's not, you know, any real intelligence and algorithmically. And this nah. whole idea of Hadoop in the cloud, where you have this, you use the elasticity to spin up more nodes. It seems to me that's largely undermined by the time it takes to push the data to the nodes. Right. Which is sort of taking us back to where we started until right. and bandwidth situation changes doing big data in the cloud is a little dubious because you have to get the big data into the cloud right um, and, and that's why we were talking about shipping hard drives and and things of that nature well now but, what if andrew what if um you've got 
I don't know, 10 servers at your house. Richard has a few at his house and I have some at mine and we wanted to just run them all together. Um, I, I haven't been hands-on enough with building the cluster to tell you absolutely if that would work or it wouldn't. I, I have to imagine with virtual networking, if yeah. no, through no other device, we can get it to work. Um, and yeah, then it sort of becomes the SETI at home sure. of, um, you know, of data processing. I love it sort of going back to like a 1970s phrase, like data, <laughs> but that's, I mean, the shoe fits, right? So, sure. um, yeah, we, we, we could do that. And, uh, you know, to its credit, that's kind of what Hadoop is all about, which is it, it's federating miscellaneous hardware resources that you have, mm-hmm. um, uh, on an as needed basis. And that, that's pretty cool stuff. And uh, what I will say, no matter how I might sort of denigrate, the big data community and, and, and the way it's sort of ignored the BI community and, and, and all the technologies that have actually already solved problems that the big data community thinks is new. Um, I will say that it is, I mean, it's a community full of excitement and bustling activity and lots of bona fide, um, uh, innovation. And it's exciting to see that. And, and as I said, the, the convergence with the more traditional BI and data warehousing worlds is happening. You may have heard of um, uh, Amazon launched a new service it calls Redshift, uh, which it markets somewhat ambiguously as a big data service. And sort of then you wonder, well, is that Hadoop? No, they already have a Hadoop service called Elastic MapReduce. So it turns out that Redshift is just. Um, there's an MPP product, a massively parallel processing data warehouse product uh, from a company called ParXL. And in effect, uh, Redshift is ParXL in the cloud. Um, you know, worked on by ParXL and, and Amazon uh, cooperatively. And it has the elasticity and it, it, but it's SQL driven. And so it's all it's all coming together. And certainly given the ubiquity of SQL skill sets both by database professionals and developers, you know, that only makes sense. Going back to Microsoft's implementation, they do a lot to put um, to put management tools and so forth in the browser instead of making you fall down to the command line, which is great. They've also created a, a .NET SDK for MapReduce so that you can write all the code in, in C-sharp. Um, and it's not just that you use C-sharp instead of Java, it's that there are some kind of high-level objects that abstract away some of the nastiness of opening raw files directly in HDFS. There's even a link provider for Hive in the Microsoft to do Really Slack. cool. Link L-I-N-Q link. Correct. That's right. That's cool. That's right. I mean, if we if we can have an ODBC driver, we should be able to have a link provider, and that's exactly what they built. Meanwhile, if if you're an old fogey like me and you'd prefer just to use ADO.NET directly and bypass link and entity framework, and actually entity framework's not even in there, so strike that. But um, you can just use the ODBC client provider with the ODBC driver and bring back data sets and data tables and so forth. Uh, from Hadoop and then bind those two controls. So uh, if you think none of this is relevant, guess again, because actually what Microsoft's working pretty hard at is just bringing Hadoop to the .NET stack in a, in a way that makes it very accessible. Andrew, define isotope. Oh, isotope context. is the, the code name for what's now called HD Insight. Okay. Um, it, but Actually, it's it's still good you ask because there's there's three components. It looks like it's all about Hadoop on Windows and that's it, um, but it goes beyond that. It's uh, it's it is Hadoop on Windows, meaning Windows Server and Windows Azure. Uh, it's also Microsoft's own ODBC driver for Hive. ODBC. Yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. The, the whole the whole data um, the whole data team at Microsoft. I mean, what we used to call the SQL Server team and we now call the Data Platform team, they've basically gone back to ODBC and deprecated OLEDB. Why? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess they figured that ODBC 2.0 book that I still have on my bookshelf, Ah. I'm looking at it now, they wanted to make it relevant again. Um, The (laughs) real reason is because ODBC took off industry-wide in a way that ODBC never did. It started as a Microsoft technology, but... um, 
I mean, if you look at ODBC's adoption, and if you look at JDBC and its similarities, then you see, you know, this really, this is the industry standard. So sure. they've, they've, they've embraced it. OADB is .NET only anyway. Yeah. Uh, or COM only. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the thing is that when ODBC was developed, there was a company called Simba involved. And actually, they're based in Richard's hometown of Vancouver. And um, Simba has their own ODBC driver for Hive that um, that a number of companies out there use. And uh, it's a pretty good one. It will take standard SQL as well as the Hive QL. Uh, dialect-specific stuff. So I kind of wished Microsoft had used Simba's driver instead of doing their own. Um, the third piece of Isotope slash HD Insight, though, is a whole framework for writing MapReduce code in, wait for it, JavaScript. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Which I think is really smart because um, now we're making Hadoop relevant to pretty much every developer community. Sure. Um, and they've done the same uh, abstraction work that they did for the .NET SDK that I was mentioning before. So the whole notion of files is abstracted away. Um, instead of having to think about getting a series of key value pairs in the reducer, you get a key in the reducer and you get, you get a list of values um, in one single call. Uh, and other, other little niceties that, um, that, if you take the Java code for a MapReduce job and then you um, you look at the JavaScript implementation with Microsoft's framework, which I believe is called Rhino, uh, just mm. to just to contrast with the Hadoop elephant, I suppose. <laughs> it's much more terse the the JavaScript stuff. And that's actually, funny. So, so would this corresponding C sharp be? So um, that's what Isotope slash HD Insight is all about. Also important to realize, I mentioned Cloudera. The other big company in the Hadoop space is a company called Hortonworks, another elephant Horton reference. Hortonworks. Nice. Yeah. Horton, here's a who. Yep. And uh, Hortonworks uh, has their own distribution of Hadoop called the Hortonworks Data Platform. And uh, in effect, they implemented it on Windows and partnered with Microsoft. So HD Insight, that's why HD Insight is kind of called HD Insight because uh, Hortonworks' distribution is called HDP, the Hortonworks Data Platform. So uh, HD Insight built by Microsoft in concert with Hortonworks. And uh, So when is it going to be soup? When is it going to be available? That's a good question. You know, it was announced and made available on a beta basis in October of 2011. Wow. It's been a long time. Um, and it really, we had every indication it was going to ship in June of 2012. And then that kind of got pushed to October and then to December. And my latest clairvoyance tells me it'll ship sometime right at the end of the first half of the year. But I can't be sure. They're close. Um, I, I've I've made good acquaintance with the guys at Hortonworks now, both through the, my Microsoft connection and through my overall, you know, sort of focus on the big data world. Uh, I do believe there's one more piece of the Hortonworks data platform on Windows that is still being worked on. So I think there's a dependency there, and I, I think that dependency is going to clear up very very soon. All right. Well, uh, so what what's next for you? I mean, you got the blog, you're you're world traveler and uh, big data expert now. What do you, what's uh, what's on your to do list? Well, I mean, it's an interesting question because um, the big data thing is a is a bit of a, a tangent, um, but it fits in with so much other stuff that I've done, and it's becoming so prevalent in what any technology company has to look at that. Um, ultimately, like I said, you know, there is a corner of Microsoft and, and big data. Um, and I think more people will come to the corner, not just me. And as that happens, uh, I think you'll see, you'll see my business grow. I also, um, will be working on a lot more big data and NoSQL focused content for, uh, Pluralsight, um, including an upcoming course on the convergence of big data and SQL relational data warehouses and related technologies. So uh, that'll be, that'll be imminent. 
Um, and there's just lots to tackle here. I think you guys can probably um, give testimony that you know when you when you focus on on a new world and you kind of you go from being a senior back to being a freshman or you, you know not even um it's it's kind of humbling but it's also it's also really exciting sure and uh so that's what it's been like for me and i, I i'm i'm you know i'm getting i'm 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 getting the momentum now things are kind of gelling and coalescing and um uh, coming up coming up to a point where uh, i think things are really going to fall into place and and um uh, it'll be, I'll be moving from learning mode into, uh, into putting the mode of putting some interesting things together and, and making some, some business offerings out of it. So I, I, in, in general terms, that's what's next. Um, I think the specific terms will become more clear as the, as the year 2013 progresses. Andrew Brass, thank you very much. Thank you. Always a pleasure. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 